I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Hi, morning, Tonio. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. It's so great to have you. I really, really loved your version of the I Ching. Oh, thank you so much. I have to say that I've never really felt satisfied with any of the other versions that I've come across. And this one, I felt just gave me so much more to chew on, so to speak. You know what? I I feel the same way too, but it's more because I think what we bring to the table in terms of the I Ching, like how you interpret it from any language to another language, you don't just bring in your linguistic knowledge. Like it also has to be your, you know, the knowledge in various subjects. And I think each one brought something specific. So the most famous one, when I see the Wilhelm, right? I think he brings too much of his Western perspective and he brings his Christianized perspective. And so I think through that and like as well, a lot of the cultural artifacts of the I Ching that is more native to how an Asian would understand it got lost in translation. And so you know how you're trying to interpret something Eastern through a Western lens. I think that's why people intuited missing pieces. But if you get someone from the culture bringing all of that context, I feel like the gaps get filled in. I hope that's what happened. That's that's totally what happened for me, because even my own personal experience of Taoism was so different from Wilhelm. I could mm -hmm. not relate to his version, even though that was considered the standard in the West for so oh, long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I couldn't relate to it at all. In fact, I pretty much ignored it. I mean, I would consult it on occasion, but basically I ignored it because it was basically irrelevant to me. <laughs> it just felt like it missed the mark for me. There is one that's really good. It was more of a modern one. I can't, uh, right now, at this exact minute, the name of the author translator escapes my mind. He's Chinese. The book cover is like black and red with, I think, some yellow splashes. I don't know if that's helpful. Like, I know it just right now, it just slipped my mind. But like that one is pretty good, I think. Uh-huh. I've been out of touch with the newer versions of the I Ching for, I would say it's been 
probably 40 years or so. Oh, wow. So the only one that I could relate to at all was John Blofeld's version. Oh, that's good. That one's really good. But it's so minimalistic. Did he do an actual translation or did he, like, it's more of an annotation where he interpreted pre-existing translations. Some people do the translation. Other people take, like, for example, Wilhelm, or like they do take a pre-existing translation and then add their own interpretation to it. Like Crowley did that with his version of the I Ching. Mm -hmm. I can't say for sure, but I know that Blofeld did translations. Oh. But I don't know for certain, you know, how he did his. Mm, I presume that would be a translation. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I would presume that too, but it's it's dangerous to presume anything. <laughs> Got it. So let me introduce you and then we'll get more formal. But what we were just talking about is is a really important part of this, because I do want to touch on the language and the differences of the language and how the different languages lend themselves to different ways of interpreting, like the kind of ambiguous and even you could put it into modern terms, the quantum nature of the way things can be interpreted through the Chinese languages, because they are formulated in such a different way than English, for example. Yeah, for sure. Those are great conversations. I really loved the questions that you had presented. I was like, wow, this person really dug deep and he's making me dig deep too. Well, it, it would be pointless not to do that for me. <laughs> okay, awesome. So my guest is Benable Wen. She's a writer, lawyer, and artist with a broad interest in esoteric traditions and purposely makes no claims of being a scholar or master of anything, preferring to identify as a daughter, wife, and sister living a pleasantly moderate life. I'm using her language there. And despite, quote unquote, not being a scholar or a master of anything, I think you have done a masterful job with this version of the I Ching. And I also want to add that you also wrote the holistic tarot and the Tao of craft. And we're going to be talking about your new book, I Ching, the Oracle. And a brief technical thing, you wrote about how even in the Chinese language, there are two ways of pronouncing I Ching or Yi Jing. And you say that both are used. Well, it's not pronunciation. It's more like two names for the text. One is Zoe. So it, you'll, you'll hear a lot of people refer to the I Ching as Zoe, which means Zoe is the Zhou dynasty from when the text was dated. Yi is the I Ching. And then the second is I Ching, I Ching, as we know. That word Yi, we translate it very sort of in terms of short summary. We translate it to the word change, but it also means exchange and interchange. So I think that's the thing. So when I see the word e in Chinese, my mind simultaneously understands it to not just mean change as in a shifting ticking of the clock forward, but it also means cause and effect. So the fact that it's going in a particular direction is directly tied to something that happened in the past. And so there's that simultaneous understanding for that word. And another interesting aspect of that word E is when you look at it etymologically, it's the sun on top and then on the bottom, it's a dagger. And the dagger is creating etching marks on a wall or something like that as if marking the passage of time. 
So when you understand the image of what that word e means, you can see that it's a cycle, like it's marking the passage of time, which means that there's a revolution to it. So Zoe and I Ching are the two names that you often hear for how you refer to that text, the oracle. Mm. And you said change and interchange. I'm so glad that you interjected the term interchange because that reminded me of the interchanging nature of this whole cycle of change, because all this change is occurring in dynamic relationship between all things and, and all of us in very subjective and objective ways at the same time. And it's pretty amazing how the I Ching is able to map that and create a kind of cyclical map that works in such a powerful way. It's kind of mind-boggling, and yet there are cultures all over the world that have created their own types of oracles to, in a sense, achieve the same kind of effect, although using very different language. Yeah, what I love about the I Ching, in a way, you can almost make the case that it's a calendar system. And you can superimpose the Chinese sexagenary calendar system over it. So it does connect to astrology as well. And so when you have a fundamental or essential understanding that it's a calendar system, it shows that, you know, our universe and not only the universe, but also the history of humanity goes through these epochs, these cyclical changes. And so if you know where we are now, you know what's going to happen in the next era of our civilization or as the global humanity and where it's going next. So it's like a much broader long-term calendar system for humanity and for the universe. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Every single civilization has its own form of calendar system. And this is just one other aspect to the calendar system that the Chinese civilization or the Yellow River civilizations used. And using the term calendar system is interesting because it sounds so mundane and yet it's mm -hmm. actually so cosmic at the same time. Yeah. And I think where it makes that leap of faith is we have the understanding of yin and yang lines, right? And so at its most fundamental level, Hexagram one, for example, which is all six of them are the yang or yang lines, which means brightness. We correspond that with the summer solstice. We also correspond that with high noon, broad daylight. And then hexagram two is all yin lines. That's the darkness. And so we correspond that with the winter solstice in the calendar system and also midnight. And then all of the other hexagrams at particular intervals fall into the scope, into the right intervals of the calendar system for a day, for the time, and also for you know the 360 degree revolution of the sun. And so it's interesting to see how those aspects of how we're observing these big aspects of time and space and how we're saying, well, that relates to things going on to my personal mundane everyday life as above, so below, as within, so without. There's that interconnectedness, that interchange you were talking about earlier, Tonio, that really is where the oracle shines. It takes that extra leap of faith in saying what you observe in the universe, this science, is actually something that applies to your everyday life. And if you can understand the cyclical nature of the universe around you, you know, you can predict what will happen next in your life. And that's a very interesting notion and one that I feel kind of ambivalent about. You know, throughout my life at times, I've wanted to know what's going to happen next and wanted to be in control of things. 
But at the same time, there's a part of me that resists that impulse to try to know what's coming and also try to control things. So I've had a longstanding ambivalent relationship with all of that. My own relationship has also evolved. I think when we're younger, more naive and perhaps more ignorant, I did want to try to control what would happen next. You know, the whole concept of using the I Ching for fortune telling, there is a reason the mass public out there does enjoy that aspect of the I Ching and attempting or endeavoring to control what will happen next. And I think the whole wisdom of the oracle is as your relationship with the oracle evolves and it's reinforced by life experiences, you do at some point exactly what you said, you do stop feeling this bizarre need to control nature, but rather it's about controlling your own nature. So you understand the forces of the world, the force majeure will happen, acts of God, as you will. And the I Ching oracle is about understanding how to control yourself, how to control your reaction and response to things that are about to happen. So it's not about knowing what will happen tomorrow, but just making sure you use something like the oracle to guide where you are in your heart and your mind so that you can best navigate whatever will come tomorrow. That's the part that I love the most about all of this. And in the language of the I Ching, they use the term like the sage and how the sage would respond in this situation. And of course, everybody gets to experience the whole gamut of possible experiences in their lives, including success and failure, good fortune and misfortune, favorable and unfavorable circumstances. And the emphasis is not on the circumstances themselves, but how, as you said, we respond to them. And in a sense, maintain, if we can, maintain our own integrity and equanimity in the face of all of that. That's one of the beautiful aspects of the texts, the recurring use of the word. So in Chinese, it's junzi, and it's a like it's just a really, really well-known concept in the Chinese language and among the Chinese because of its connection to Confucius. So the Confucian principle of Junzi was taken directly from the I Ching. And then we just associate it more with Confucian ideals, but it's actually I Ching ideals, right? But it just became folded into Confucianism later on in history. So the concept of Junzi, I translated to the sage, hoping that the idea that would be communicated is that it's your higher self. What would your ideal version of yourself do in certain circumstances? And then throughout the text, there were those words, Shaorin, which basically means, or you see it translated to inferior person. I went with the word adversary, as in like that part of you that pushes back, like your inner adversary, or sometimes it can also be the externalized adversary as well, but it's the pushback against the path that you seek to take. And then Darin means superior person, or that's how it's often translated. I went with the eminent one, which is that idea of something that is beyond you for now, but you could get there. So it's there, it shows that hierarchy that is also built into the I Ching system and into Confucian principles. So those were the terms that I went with. And you see the idea of inferior person, superior person, and the sage or the higher self, the Junzi throughout the text. It's a recurring concept or theme. Right. And that brings up two things for me. One is the connection. You use the term pushback. And I usually use the term resistance, how we, mm. we, we resist change. We resist things that we don't like without realizing that when we resist something, we're actually amplifying the effect of the obstacle that we think we're dealing with, or we having a kind of 
unclear relationship with the challenge that we're facing. And then the other thing is you mentioned the Confucian approach and Confucius and some of the earlier Taoists have a very different view of how the sage responds to things. Like Confucianism is a kind of ethical system, whereas some of the early Taoists totally rejected that notion, that approach, and in fact, loved to poke fun at Confucius for, in a sense, being so kind of morally controlling in a way. I think what I love about the I Ching and why I started there in terms of my own journey in terms of translating all these various texts and getting back in touch with my cultures, because in a lot of ways, the I Ching is ground zero, right? It's sort of all of these various established Chinese systems of philosophy and religion, Confucianism can be either a philosophy or a religious system. They all took the I Ching and the principles in the I Ching interpreted it in a very particular way and then ran with it. And then all of these different systems took the same text, interpreted it differently and ran in totally opposite directions that became almost contrarian to each other. And so it's like, how do you reconcile that? That everyone is looking at the same text, the same words. And in this case, they all speak the same language, even not even you don't even have the issue of English translations. And they still ran with it in totally opposite directions and then turned around, pointed fingers and said, you're wrong. That's fascinating to me. Mm, yeah. So considering that there are so many different versions of the I Ching that have emerged over the past well over 2000 years, what would you consider to be the basis of your version and your approach to the translation and interpretation and also the philosophical and cosmological underpinnings. In yeah. Chinese, I'm not sure there are different translations. It's more just, you know, because they take the classical text and then the issue revolves more around the concept of annotations. And so it's not about how they translate the text. It's more about, okay, you know, we see the classical text, but we don't even agree. Now we have these different versions, the Ma Wang Dui, right? And so it gets so complicated. But let's assume we're all using the same text. It's about different annotations because the words are very complex. For example, we all agree we're speaking the same language that this text here, this line means the fox's tail gets wet. But what, what does that mean, right? How do you translate that? And then you have to look at the context clues. What does each word mean etymologically, historically? Like So all of these concepts of how you interpret something like the fox's tail gets wet, that's where you get all of these different schools of interpretation and how they start conflicting with each other. How do I interpret? I think for me, what I did was I really wanted to keep it objective. And so I did the translation because mine is more than just an annotation because I have to work with it in English or go from classical Chinese to English. And so what I did was I tried very hard to look at what words meant pre-Qin. So there's this idea of before the Qin dynasty, words had certain meanings. And then, of course, words evolve over time. And so what do those words mean today? So for example, even in English, I think, is it the word embarrassment? I think in the Victorian era and before that, embarrassment had well, like financial ruin, right? And then now when I'm embarrassed, it doesn't mean I'm in financial ruin. So I think words evolve over time. So understanding that historical context is important when you're working with a text as old as the E chain. And so I try to subdivide my translations into one, it's the more objective, what does the text actually say? And try my best to be clinical 
critical about that translation. And then underneath is my annotation. And that part does vary the whole gamut. So I do bring in the whole spectrum of new text and old text versions of interpretation, rationalist and originalist approaches. So I did try to cover as much ground as possible in my annotations and interpretation. But the actual translation, I tried to keep it as reductive as possible in terms of what it actually translates to from Chinese to English. Mm -hmm. So at this point, and I do want to go into the origins of all of this, but first, I'd love to know how you came to write this and also the holistic tarot before this and what it is about these kind of things that interests you so much and where that interest came from. Well, my family, perhaps through my mother and then my maternal grandparents, tend to be more immersed in the world of Taoist magic, spirit mediumship, if you use the word fortune telling even. And so all of that is something that my family as a legacy that I inherited has always been immersed in. And then having my specific experience of having to move from Asian culture into an immigrate to the United States and be thrown into upstate New York in the suburbs, which is a very, you know, Christianized, Eurocentric perspective, having to navigate that, all of those factors and life experiences pushed the trajectory of where I took my personal interest and also inheritance of this legacy of spirit mediumship. And so I think when I was much younger, I did reject a lot of these cultural, my native cultural influences, because I didn't really understand it in terms of, I, I couldn't superficially put it in the context of my lived experience as an Asian American. And so tarot was one way that I could still sort of, you know, scratch the itch, if you will, of immersing in these experiences of trying to understand the beyond and trying to connect heaven and earth in a way. And then later on, when I was able to re-enter my cultural heritage and, and understand it more as an inheritance. That's when I got more into the I Ching. I've always wanted to translate the I Ching and I've had a working copy of my own translations, I think since my 20s. And so it was a kind of an active working document since my 20s for the next 20, 25 years that I worked on these translations. And that's the evolution of how you get the book that you see now. So it was it's a work in progress for the past, I would say, two to three decades. Yeah, it's very impressive. And it seems like a lifetime of work. So yeah. And I also love the way you talked about your interest in the Tarot as being a way of connecting to the beyond or to what we don't see, particularly in, in our Western culture, modern cultures, we focus so much on what we can see and perceive through our physical senses. And yet, of course, there's so much more to this universe than just what we can see but it's really hard to understand it and map it with the tools that we were brought up with. And it's fascinating how anybody who has access or the opportunity to all of these different schools of mystery traditions end up being interested in all of the above. So even in the 1700s and 1800s in Europe, they were already fascinated with I Ching at the same time that they were starting to look into occult approaches and Kabbalistic approaches and bring in hermetic alchemy into the tarot and East as well. So as soon as you have more exposure to the tarot and the Kabbalah in the East, in Asian societies, they are interested in integrating Kabbalah 
and hermetic philosophy and the tarot into their pre-existing systems of I Ching and other forms of fortune telling and divination. So I just love that universality that as long as you have the opportunity to access any of these mystery traditions, a fundamental nature, a type of person, a particular soul is going to gravitate toward all of the above, no matter where you come from or where you were born into. Yeah, and kind of like you, I'm also drawn to many of these different traditions because they all speak a universal language. And intuitively, I tend not to identify too much with any particular approach, but feel more enriched by the broader range of it, like not getting stuck or trapped in one way of seeing things. I agree. I think on some like high level approach, each of these systems is one lens. And it's almost like a laser where if you stack multiple lenses, you increase and enhance that laser-like focus on that greater universal truth, if you will. And so I, I do see great merit in being able to take a step back and see it from that macroscopic level and stack the many lenses together and then have that hyper-focus to see something greater beyond that is the sum that's greater than all the parts of those different lenses. So I definitely think that there's great value in that type of approach. Mm -hmm. So how did the I Ching come into being historically? Historically, I would say we don't know. <laughs> I think that's probably the best answer we can give if we're being honest with ourselves. We certainly have our lore and mythology, which we can go on and on about, which is fascinating. So we do have our mythology for where the I Ching came from. But historically, we do attribute to the Zhou dynasty. And I think... Beyond that, I'm not sure if we can say any more from a historical perspective. You talked about different annotations. Where did those come from? So it was the Duke of Zhou, which is one of the sons of King Wen, who we attribute to having written out, you know, those little pithy statements. So if you look at it more like literally in my translations, it's the part in the box, the very short pithy sentences that are supposed to describe each of the 64 hexagrams, that's attributed to one of the sons of King Wen. And so you have this complete text that was the Zoe for a while. And then around the time of Confucius, either we say Confucius did it, but then probably it's more accurate to say Confucian scholars as a collective went into this text and rounded out some of the interpretations appended to it, and that those appendices became the Ten Wings. But now we integrate the Ten Wings into when we say Zoe, and the translations you'll actually see in my book, that's the part in the beginning, the quote-unquote oracle sections. Those are the Ten Wings, plus there's more to them. And all of that together, we call the I Ching. And then so Confucius or a team of Confucian scholars helped write or finalize the full complete text as we have inherited it and received it today. And then from there, I think pretty much every single dynasty you had, I'll just say like, you know, two or three superstars of various schools of philosophy that went into the I Ching and interpreted it or annotated or said, this means that or that means this. And they wrote books on how to interpret the I Ching and I Ching discourse, which became Yi Xue, the study of the I Ching. So every single dynasty had its own distinct characters that contributed to how we interpreted the text and how we receive the text today. 
And I greatly appreciated the way you recommend to us to draw from these different annotations or different interpretations intuitively, rather than trying to be exact or use a particular approach. And that was something that I didn't see in any of the other versions of the I Ching before. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That was one marked difference I saw between the native approach, if I'm only looking at I Ching discourse in Chinese versus when I only look at I Ching discourse in English, sometimes I don't even recognize the two as being about the same subject matter. So in Chinese, I think there is a really unspoken and mutually agreed upon understanding that there are just different approaches. So for example, some people are going to use the new text approach, that's the word that we use in English, which I think my best way of describing that is, you know how some people look at the book of Revelation and say that it predicts an apocalypse, or you can pretty much cite any line from the book of Revelation and say that it predicts something or it says something or it's prophetic or, or you use a Bible for divination. So that's one approach to the oracle. But then another is the old text, which is a school of philosophy that says that you have to look at the historical authenticity of the different verses. And so they're more about approaching the I Ching as a philosophical study. And there's these different schools. And then, of course, you have other scholars that come and mix and bring a hybrid approach to the two. So it's not like it's one or the other. That's just sort of the extreme ends of the spectrum. And then multiple philosophers over time try to bring the two versions together. And so there's always been this understanding of some people approach it with looking at the metaphysical correspondences, where looking at the Wuxing and the Bakwa trigram correspondences are extremely important. How could you even approach the Yixing without looking at that? And others saying, well, that's not important at all. And then, of course, the whole gamut in between those two extreme opinions. And so I think that's something I, you're right, I've never seen that in English, where they make that acknowledgement upfront, right, that there are just different approaches, and there's not one right, one wrong. And the way you presented, there are so many different ways to interpret it, including the material itself, what you choose to read or what you choose to relate to. And you can run into contradictions and it can be really tricky to navigate one's path through one's own personal interpretation of a particular reading. It's funny, you know, well, this one is more of a Tao Te Ching example than the I Ching, but it's because I'm currently working on the translation for the Tao Te Ching. And so it's like fresh on my mind, but it was just one that really just, I wouldn't say haunted, but just really got at me like, what is up with this, right? And so for example, in the Tao Te Ching, I think it was verse six, Gu Shen. So there's this idea, there's this term in the Tao Te Ching. I was looking at other English translations and it gets so literal. So if you look at the words, obviously, the literal translation would be something like the spirit of the fountain or the spirit of the valley. One word is spirit. The other word can mean a fountain, a wellspring or font of some kind, or it can mean a valley. And then the thing is, if you actually look at the whole word itself, and then you look at the context clues later on, basically, it's actually the name. It's a, it's a proper pronoun. It's the goddess of fertility. So it's a reference to the goddess of fertility. And that was something that was missing from a lot of the English translations because it gets a little too literal. And so what you see in a lot of English translations of the I Ching is you do see that sometimes it gets a little bit too literal where they're literally taking one word at a time, translating each word from Chinese to English, and then just like stringing them together. So they don't always make a lot of sense, but that's not how Chinese works. 
two words might mean two separate things, but when you put them together, they mean something completely different, you know? And so I saw that missing in a lot of the translations from Chinese to English. Yeah, that's one of the fascinating things about the Chinese language, which I am not at all familiar with, but because I've interviewed some people about the language and it becomes clear that there is so much ambiguity that's possible. And when you were writing about the hexagrams themselves, the section on the hexagrams, you lay out the different ways that you can interpret it and you leave it to us to intuit our own way through it rather than using the Western approach of figuring that out for us. Yeah, when I worked on the translations part in the book, I, in terms of the writing process, I made it a point that I would only look at native Chinese texts and then the texts that in Chinese I Ching scholarship, we considered authoritative figures of interpretation and annotation. So I only stuck with how it has been discussed, the discourse of how to interpret those various lines of the I Ching in Chinese and only in Chinese. The only times I brought in English, you know, the really famous ones, like the really, really well-known, popularly frequently talked about English translations or interpretations of certain lines that have become so iconic that you, you kind of have to talk about it to deconstruct it a little bit. So those are the only times I bring up pre-existing English translations. But beyond that, I try to stick only with being able to transmit from the Chinese discourse into English. And so that was a very important aspect to my writing process in the translation section. You mentioned the language of the spirit of the fountain, and that it was actually indicating something else, a kind of archetype. Could you talk about the hexagrams as like archetypes? Because you also say that each hexagram has its own energy or chi to it. And oh yeah. And it seems like that is a kind of an, an archetype in a sense. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think that's definitely a, a valid interpretation. I like to think of the 64 hexagrams as almost a form of expanded periodic table. Like, you know how a calendar system or a periodic table, like they're marking certain points of this circle, right? So if you look at a circle, it has eight points, it has 64 points, it has infinite points, right? And so first of all, it's infinite. So it's not like there is only these 64, right? It's more just like these 64 mark key points in that circle, that infinite omnipotent circle. And by looking at these 64, it's probably the easiest, most reductive, but still comprehensive way for a human to understand that infinite loop of change. And so these 64, like you said, archetypes represent 64 like plots on that timetable, if you will. And how we change, like, you know, we all look a certain way when we're babies. And then we all look a certain way when we're a teenager and we all look a certain way when we're adults. But then obviously there's the whole infinite spectrum of differences in terms of the actual physical manifestation of how we look when we're babies or when we're 10 years old, or when we're 16 or when we're 95. But there's that fundamental essence of something, right? Like you can definitely tell the difference between an infant and a 95-year-old. And so in terms of that as an archetype, for sure, that's how I see certain etched points of this circle, which the 64 hexagrams are marking for us. And it's so much more complex than just the 64 hexagrams because there are also the individual lines and you go through the individual lines as well. And there's also the changing lines. So you start with 
Well, actually, you, of course, you start with the eight trigrams, which create the 64 hexagrams, but then with all the individual lines and then the moving lines, you end up with an exponentially larger range of mapped out points on the circle, so to speak. Yeah. And so I think it's 384, if you want to really expand it out into the separate lines, right? It's just basic math, the 64 times six. And so it's fascinating how you have that as well. But then when you go back to geometry and just trying to understand what it is that the I Ching is trying to map out, you can look at the circle where you're, you're plotting the points around the circumference, but also things can happen like different, you know, equations, different mathematical functions and operations of the universe happen where you create these chords from one point to the other on that circle. And so it is non-linear. It's not just a linear function. The I Ching is also mapping out non-linear functions of the universe. And so it, there are chords that go from one point to another that to us, the most simplistic way of saying it is like it's skipping from, you know, hexagram two to hexagram 34, for example. So the idea of changing lines is that idea of a non-linearity of how the course of time and space work. And so when we look at the I Ching, it maps out both the linear functions and also the non-linear functions. And all of this relates to the cycles of change. And it's really a very highly complex thing that's going on. Could you talk about what you refer to in the book as the three meanings of change and also perhaps bring into the Eastern view of change? Because in the West here, we hate change because it makes us feel out of control and brings up fear. I think everybody fears change. So I think to be fair, even in East Asian societies, no matter which society, there's always going to be that push and pull, that binary, if you will, where you have those who tend to be more conservative, who are resistant to change, and then the more progressive perspective, which is more about radical change. So you see that push and pull. But in terms of the three meanings of change that I think it's baked into the philosophy of the I Ching at a more universal level that everybody can agree with. But then, you know, how you interpret those three universal levels of change, it's going to run the whole gamut. But basically, the first is this principle that the universe is self-generative, it's self-created itself, that self-birth, and then it's in constant self-generated motions of change. And then that path of change, it's actually follows a rational order. There's a rational, almost you can make the point it's predictive. There's a predictive pattern because it follows a specific pattern. And if you can understand what that pattern is, then you will be able to know everything there is about the universe. So the I Ching becomes, it's almost like an offer that if you are willing to understand that there will always be constant change, but that that constant path of change follows a well-reasoned, rational, orderly pattern, then you are able to fully understand everything there is about the universe. I think there's a well-known quote in the tarot world, like if you understand the tarot, the architecture of the tarot, you can understand the universe. And so there's that same idea here, where if you can understand the basic operational functions of the I Ching, you can understand the universe. That has always been a philosophy baked into the I Ching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a line you have in the book, to know the methods of change is to know the way of the gods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how you interpret gods, though, is, of course, you can have all these 
very robust debates about what God means, right? Right. But the way I think of that in the context of that line, the gods refer to like archetypes of everything in the universe, Mm -hmm. in constant interaction, that they're not personified beings. They are essentially elements of the universe, essential elements of the universe. Yeah. So that God concept, Shen, I think, for example, when we look at each other, humans, and even how we have relationships with animals, we don't really understand the exact interplay between neuroscience and brain functions on a physical, organic, you know, biological level and consciousness. Like even to this day, we don't really understand that idea of consciousness. So we can look at each other and there's something, maybe we can use the word divine, but like there's something to how we each are that goes beyond the ability to communicate what that is through the vocabulary of organic systems and biological functions. And so there's something to everything we see in this world that goes beyond the physical matter and how you can describe physical matter. So we all intuit there's something more there. And so at a fundamental level, that's Shin, that's God, that's that spirit energy, that there's an intuitive knowledge that there's something bigger, like a soul or spirit of some kind, a chi that has its own sentience almost. But we use the word sentience because it's our best way of understanding somebody's ability to control their own actions, right? Like the idea of they have their own personality. So I think that's why we personify God, because it's the easiest way to understand the mysteries of God. Yeah. And another fascinating thing about this is the binary nature of the lines. It's like a binary code that made me think of like a computer and considering how old the I Ching is. It's fascinating how that works. And you also talked about how it correlates with biology and DNA coding as well. That in a sense, the universe seems to operate in that way. I love how Leibniz, he's credited as the father of modern day calculus. I mean, he very much read the I Ching and he understood the I Ching. And a lot of people can make the case that he even wrote some texts that show he was modeling his calculus principles after the I Ching's binary zeros and ones, which then became the foundation of modern computing systems. And it's this idea of using ones and zeros, yin and yang, to code, to program a virtual representation of reality. And so there's this implicit understanding that what we're seeing right now in terms of the physical matter, that's not the reality. The truest form of that reality is a string of zeros and ones, yin and yang lines. This is something that's beyond what we can see because what we're seeing is the virtual reality, the virtual or digital representation of that fundamental programming. And if you want to really understand the programming, it is zeros and ones, but that's not to say that you can start categorizing everything in physical matter as either a zero or either a one. Not everything is either yin or yang, right? Like it's obviously this string, like we even use that six-bit string, the hexagram of six lines, this idea of there's a six-bit string or a four-bit string to understand the combination of zeros and ones, the way the fluid flow and alchemy of zeros and ones form what we see as, you know, different aspects of that reality. And I also love that there's 64 codons that represent the possible sequences for all of DNA and RNA, which is creation of life. And so that has always fascinated a lot of biologists, like where can we go with this? 
if we can use the basic system of the I Ching to further develop calculus, and we know that there is this synchronicity of these 64 codons in RNA and DNA, how can we use the structure of the I Ching to better advance our understanding of biology? And this reflects on the nature of change again, and how change moves and how it manifests in the world around us through this constant movement, which is like a continual dialogue, not just between two elements, but between all elements at the same time. Yeah. And one of the reasons I've always been fascinated with the I Ching is because of my father's fascination with the I Ching. My father is a physicist. And he would say, you know, things like, for example, the concept of the uncertainty principle. He would talk about the nonlinear concept of space and time, that that's a principle in quantum physics. And so seeing how these principles are built into the fundamental philosophy of the I Ching and how that then plays out into forces of nature and also what we see, that virtual representation of material reality, understanding that, I think that's something that has always interested modern physicists. And so I guess for me, the fact that someone like my father, who seems so rational and scientific-based, would be interested in the I Ching which often is attributed to, you know, less scientific, you know, schools of thought. That's fascinating to me, where you have this one platform that both the fortune tellers, shamans, and spirit mediums can meet the scientists and the biologists and the mathematicians. So to have that platform for science and religion can meet and say, okay, there's something here that's infinitely fascinating to me. And that's infinitely fascinating to me as well. And there's like a deep kind of a paradox that quantum physics has thrown into the whole scientific perspective that mm -hmm. it kind of pulls the rug out from under the whole concept of what is rational and, and changing the landscape. Yeah, and also what it means to be what is rational. Right. I think it's so fascinating how we even limit ourselves to the concept of what is rational and what is logic. And that perhaps you know, the idea of science is so much bigger than we, you know, I mean, like the, the idea of the scientific method, even, I think a lot of this gets called into question. I totally, totally agree. I think about these things a lot. Yeah, like the observer's effect too, where I think we've been stuck for so long that what I see is the truth. If I can't see it, if I can't prove it with the scope of my own knowledge, then it is false. And whether we want to admit it or not, we operate under that belief. And that's how both science and religion has functioned for so long, that only what is within the faculties of my mind and my abilities is capable of proving all truth. And so if I'm not capable of proving it, then it is untrue. And that, that very binary way of thinking is actually not. It's counterintuitive to what the I Ching and the I Ching's binary is talking about. Yeah, and, and many scientists, many physicists are still having a hard time, you know, wrapping their minds around and accepting quantum physics, the mm -hmm. implications of it. And oh, yeah. many are still totally refusing to accept it and desperately trying to undermine it and reject it. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Over a period of more than 100 years, we're still wrestling, in a sense, with our old demons, so to speak, our old ideas about the nature of reality. Yeah. 
think string theory now, I, I don't know a lot about it, but just listening as, you know, an outsider, you know, and then like listening to the different debates between those who do know what they're talking about, how they argue with each other about string theory is just fascinating. So it, there is so much that's still unknown to us. And it's both frightening and fascinating to acknowledge how much we still don't know. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, I love all of this stuff and I love science. And to me, the essence of science is embracing the unknown because it's the unknown that motivates the true scientific spirit, I think. There is that resonance between occultists and scientists. I don't think either side wants to admit where it is about finding the rhyme and reason to the madness of the unknown. You know, we both want to be able to explain the mysteries. That's what we're we're both doing. The occultist and the scientist is both striving to explain the mystery. Right. And the true scientist, in my opinion, is somebody who has an open mind and is deeply curious. Yeah. Which is why you have that stereotype of the cuckoo inventor, because those who are at the cutting edge of science, who are truly the pioneers of science, I think there needs to be an element of madness to that genius because they need to think outside the box. They need to be able to do what is unorthodox. Right. And those people are those who have a kind of natural inclination to just shift outside of the box, to see things outside of the box. And our culture, the Western culture, has been threatened by that forever. And yet, those are the people who bring forth the most profound change. Yeah. Although to be fair, I think Asians have that fear as well, especially considering how deeply collectivist the society is. Like we're, we're brought up with that proverb, the nail that sticks out the most gets hammered down first. And so I think it's just humanity who does not like people who are a little bit too cutting edge and unorthodox. I think the unorthodox, the occult, if you will, scares us. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to the I Ching, could you talk about the art of formulating a question to receive the kind of guidance that we're most deeply and truly seeking? There is so much discourse on this. And you see this in other divination systems as well, if you want to bring this back to the tarot. Like there's so many opinions on this aspect. And then there's even ethical boundaries that we humans begin to impose. We start imposing even ethical boundaries to what can and cannot be asked. Like all of these things are kind of baked into the issue of how do you formulate a question? My own approach, I feel like the divination process itself, it's an alignment process. I view it as kind of adjusting or tempering between me, the closed system of me and the closed system of the oracle itself. And that's what the divination process itself is, whether using coins or yarrow stocks. That's actually one of the arguments in favor of using yarrow stock. It's much longer. You have a greater opportunity to really calibrate and connect and attune your body system to the eaching body system so that they're actually connected before the divination is revealed. But I believe at least that The most important aspect of formulating a question is clarity in the mind and the heart. And so it's not about, oh, how do you phrase the question? What words do I use? What can I ask? Can I not ask? I think sometimes the clearest question that we have for the universe, for God, whatever, 
we can't always use words. Words like they elude us. And even if you look at the each like the true meaning goes way beyond the words you can actually put on paper or the words you can formulate in your mind. But it's a great place to begin because if you can't even find the logos to express what you're thinking, it's probably a good sign that there is no clarity of mind and heart. So there's that connection, of course, right? So you do want to focus on language, but to begin with, focus on meditating so that your mind and heart are very crystal clear on what it is you want to know. And then you keep your mind focused on what is it that I truly want to know and focus on that as a meditative point while you go through the divination process. That's in a nutshell, how I would recommend formulating questions. I love the way you spoke of that. I'm remembering that back roughly around 40, 45 years ago, when I was inquiring into the I Ching more often, there were times when words would fail me, but what I would do is I would go inside and I would feel the situation in my body and hold that feeling as I was tossing the coins. I've never done the yarrow stick method. That's much more involved and takes a lot longer. And to maintain one's clear intention for that long could be challenging for many people, I think. So I've always used the coins and there are times where I feel like it feels too quick, but the arrow sticks seem like it would be too long. So could you talk about those dynamics? Because you, of course, are experienced in using all of these different methods. There are actually multiple Euro stock methods and also the Rice County method, because I think over the millennia, a lot of Chinese people came to the same conclusion, like, yeah, ain't got time for that, right? And so they're like, no, 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 no. And so they found, I wouldn't say shortcuts, but I mean, they, there have been different approaches to Euro stock divination that have emerged. So there are, I call it shortcut or short form Euro stock, which is what I will tend to use on the day to day. But um, every once in a while, if it's a very important question, I do do the long form. But I think also one of the great benefits to sell Euro stock as a better form, not a better form, but one reason to go that route is because sometimes if I'm using the coins, it feels like it's more focused, but maybe I'm focused on the wrong thing. Whereas if I'm doing Euro stock, my focus isn't on the question. My focus is on the physical motion, like ones like counting and sorting and all of that. And it's almost like if I'm counting and sorting and focusing on that, it's like body or muscle memory, something about my body is calibrating itself to the architecture of the I Ching, the two, the four, the eight, the six, the numerological system that is universal, that is truly the connecting point between me as a system and the I Ching as a system. So when I focus on that math, everything else, you know, it's, it's almost like the unconscious mind is able to connect better than the conscious mind. And so that's actually one of the pitfalls of like a shorter form method. So sometimes, for example, I think my question is, what should I do next in my career? Right. And I think that's the question that I really, really want the I Ching to answer. But maybe that's not really the question, because why am I so worried about the next step in my career transition? There's something deeper and more fundamental late into that. That's the true 
core and essence of what I want to know so that I can live a more fulfilling life. And so sometimes if you reduce your body functions to the mathematics of it, it will better calibrate to what it is you truly need to know to live a more fulfilling life and get the better answer from the I Ching. So sometimes it's not garbage in, garbage out, but a lot of times the reason we think the answer we see from the I Ching is not clear is because we haven't asked the right question. You know what I mean? And so I think sometimes maybe focusing on the math, the unconscious will ask the right question for us. Yeah. And another thing that occurred to me is that while you're doing the long form, which I haven't done, is that you can get further insight into the issue or the question or what's really going on inside of us that we need some kind of resolution for. I love the long form when I need to compel myself into a mode of meditation because a lot of self-reflection and self-realizations, as you just pointed out, happen just in the process of, because it takes like an hour if you really want to go through the long form. And so in that time, you do almost come to self-realizations that then amplify the final received transmission from the I Ching. I would love to do the long form at some point. I would have to come across some yarrow sticks or something in place of yarrow sticks, which be a bit challenging where I am, but an interesting challenge to go out into the woods and see what I could find. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, the coin toss method, I think it cannot fulfill the same functions as the yarrow stock. It absolutely can. Everything that we just said about the yarrow stock, it just needs to be adjusted. So you would have to be a little bit more attentive to your state of mind, maybe be a little bit more attentive to how you are, your state of mind and, and your meditative state before you actually sit down and begin. So there's a lot of ways to craft the coin toss method. So it is equivalent to what is happening with the Yarrow stock. So I don't think one is better than the other at all. I think if you're going to use a different system, you have to adjust accordingly. That's all there is to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there any particular hexagrams that you would like to talk about as a kind of an example of how we can use the I Ching for guidance and also how to interpret it in, let's say, a particular subjective context that applies to us? I realize I'm asking a kind of a messy question there. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I want to talk about where we are now as a global society and what I think a lot of people have been feeling. And I think it'll become clear what I'm talking about in terms of these cryptic prefaces once I say it. So I want to go with hexagram 63 after the ending. And hexagram 63 is fire on the bottom, water on top. And I will walk us through what these six lines of the hexagram are. But first of all, after the ending, it's this idea. And then when you read the translations of the text, the fundamental concept, if you can be reductive about it, it's saying that, okay, everything's over. So it should be over, right? But no, the thing that has happened that means that it's over now still results in having ghosts and demons present. So why is it that after the fall, there's still ghosts and we're still like, why are we still fighting when the battle or the war is over, right? Like there's already been a winner or loser in our mind, but we're still fighting a battle. What's happening? What? Why is there this ghost? And so we're talking about this idea of change, some people being resistant to change, some people wanting to push radical change before people are ready for it. 
And I love that idea baked into line one. And so line one of hexagram 63, it's the unwillingness to do what must be done to transition onward. And it was that idea of resistance to change. So I think it is universal. None of us want to do what needs to be done to change in a way that's going to be productive and fulfilling for the collective. And then you have two, which is behaving in ways that are beneath our own sense of virtue. So that's fear. So when we're faced with very challenging prospects of change, a lot of times that's when the ugliest side of human nature comes out. So when we're faced with the unfamiliar, we start acting in ways that are beneath us, you know, and we're seeing that whenever you hit a point in the human era that does resonate with hexagram 63 after the ending. And then line three is about having to exorcise our demons, this idea of having demons and how do you purge ourselves of those inner demons and inner devils. Line four, it's predicting that every golden age must fall. So every time there's a renaissance afterward, there must be a dark period. But then also the positive, right? After the dark ages, there will be a renaissance. So there's this idea that after a golden age, after a long standing period of peace and prosperity, there will be some great fall, some cataclysmic tragedy that happens. And it's not about preventing it. So when we talk about being able to control change, I don't necessarily think that we can control change. We can get into that conversation, exoteric versus esoteric, but on a fundamental individual level as human beings, you know, generically speaking, we might not be able to prevent the cataclysm that is baked into this idea of the cycle of change after a golden age. But there are things we can do to make sure we mitigate the damage to ourselves when the fall comes. And then number five, I love line five, where it's like, you cannot take your wealth with you in the end. So there's this idea of once there's the fall, when cataclysm comes, you can't take your wealth with you. And a very simple way you see that is during World War II, when there were famine and war, and when people had to flee, when there were refugees, there's always this like temptation to gather up your wealth and bring it with you to the new land, right? Like when you want to flee or when you're a refugee. There is this wisdom of at that point, you have to just take life and limb and you cannot take your wealth with you. And then you can also think about the cycle of life and death. We cannot take all that we've built and that we're proud of. We can't take this with us to the afterlife. And that maybe the things that we value as achievements and victories and virtue in this life are not virtuous and valued in the afterlife. And so there's this idea of being mindful of what it is that might be valued in a different life than the one that we have here. And another reason I wanted to bring up hexagram 63 is because there is a typo in my book from the publishing house. They forgot to include line six. It is in the manuscript I submitted. I don't know how they forgot it, but line six, it says, here comes the fall. And so again, it's this idea of the pride before the fall. And so I just, I can't believe that that line was forgotten and omitted from the book. But I do have amendments with all the errors and omissions corrected on my website if people are interested. But yeah, that was the one I really wanted to talk about because I think it speaks to us in volumes when you think about what's happening globally today. Mm -hmm. That's such a wonderful example. I'm so glad I asked that and you chose that one. And it's interesting that omission of line six is sort of like a cultural Freudian slip in a way. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was thinking that too. 63 is also such a great example of the wisdom contained in all of the hexagrams. I saved the huge section on the hexagrams for last 
because it's such a huge book. And I enjoyed reading those hexagrams so much. It's such an amazing body of wisdom and it's so nuanced. And what you described about hexagram 63 really applies to all of the hexagrams yeah. in, the, in their own unique way. It's just full of such nuanced wisdom that as I'm reading it, and particularly the way you presented it in your book, it really can cover the gamut of all of our possible experience. For me, that demonstrates why this text has been timeless and why even though something from 3,000 years ago endlessly fascinates us and scholars and scientists today, because there's something... Every time you unravel another layer to the I Ching, it just, for me, I just wonder, where did this come from? Like, no wonder there are conspiracy theories about aliens and gods. Like, at some point, you're just like, where the heck did this come from? You know, it's such a fan fascinating question to ask. And it seems as though the I Ching is a living being in itself, imbued with a profound and wise spirit. Anybody who works with the I Ching for an extended period of time, even on like a like tongue-in-cheek way, will have to acknowledge there's something about it because even in terms of how it treats you, right? Like it has a personality, how it answers your questions, like the tone that it takes, it's different. It's like you will develop a different relationship with the Oracle from, for example, me, because we're different, just like different siblings have very different relationships with the same parent, right? And so it's almost like the parent has to adjust the tone and timber of how it gives you insight. It almost feels like it knows you on some level and it adjusts itself based on that knowledge of you as a person. I mean, this is a very reductive way of putting it, but that's what it feels like as a human. And I guess that's why you can call it an oracle. Yeah, exactly. Can you talk about the connection between the I Ching and the Tao Te Ching? They say to understand the Tao Te Ching, you have to understand the I Ching first because the I Ching came before the Tao Te Ching on a nonlinear level because we now have the Tao Te Ching and this huge body of discourse on how to interpret the Tao Te Ching. We can now almost work backwards and look at that to help us supplement our understanding and the development of wisdom for the I Ching. So I think the two are very much tethered to each other. So... One last question, perhaps. I would love for you to talk about Shen and how it relates to our relationship with the I Ching and ourselves and everything. I have a lot of videos on my YouTube channel that I start talking about what is Shen and the different ways that we approach this idea and etymologically how we use this word in various vocabulary words and how far this word has expanded in terms of scope of subject matter. But if you ask eight people what Shen, God, I'll just use the word God, spirit, what Shen, spirit means, you're going to get 10 different answers. And I love how as we develop systems of thought and psychology, modern psychology, just in terms of the Chinese language, we use the word Shen to build vocabulary in the field of psychology. And yet you also have the word Shen as the basis and obviously everything that relates to religion, spirituality, and Taoism and Buddhism and folk religions. 
So Shin can mean personal God, like a God spirit, some kind of spiritual entity that we would treat as a personal God or a sentient spirit of some kind. But at the same time, there's also this idea of an inner consciousness, which is why we use that word to build vocabulary in the field of psychology. And so I see it as what we were talking about earlier, where it's this, we all intuit and know on an intuitive level that there's something that feels like it's divine in everything that we see, which is why you have pantheistic views of nature, of mother goddess of nature. Even an atheist will go out to a majestic landscape, a hike to the top of a mountain, or you know, even deep dive under the sea into caves. And when you see these different aspects of nature, you're struck with a level of awe that feels like you are communing with the divine. And maybe an atheist won't use those words, but there is a feeling of awe inside like, wow, I know so little and I am so small compared to what is truly out there. And that feeling of the divine, I associate with Shen. And so it's about divinely inspired nature. That's what Shen is at the fundamental level. It's the Shen within us, the divinely inspired nature we are all capable of actualizing. And it's also Shen as in the divine nature of the world we observe around us. So that's how I see the word Shin. And Shin is used multiple times throughout the actual text itself in the I Ching. You also see it in the Tao Te Ching and a lot of the Taoist canons. And so it is a very fundamental core principle that needs to be understood to fully understand Eastern occult philosophy. Mm. Thank you so much for that and a wonderful note to end on. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Tonio. My guest is Ben... Benable Wen. She's a writer, lawyer, and artist with a broad interest in esoteric traditions, and she's the author of The Holistic Tarot and The Tao of Craft. And her new book that we've been talking about is I Ching, The Oracle. Day.